Good morning. We are continuing our series, Living Hope, and looking at the book of 1 Peter. And today we're going to look at what, first, what Peter says about suffering. And you may have noticed that I was gone for a few weeks and that I was in Atlanta uh, helping my grandkids, taking care of my grandkids, and working remotely. And it's a joy, it's not suffering to be there. But there is this one aspect of being a grandma that causes suffering for me. And that's the dilemma of when to speak up and when to keep my mouth shut. Right, grandparents? Or parents, maybe you identify with that more. But you know, I want to respect my kids. I think they're wise and good parents. I don't want to meddle in their lives and I don't want to cause unnecessary conflict. But sometimes I notice things that I would do differently. Right, grandparents? I know you're being quiet. <laughs> but I know you know what I'm talking about. And sometimes I agonize about this, and I lay awake at night, and I wonder what I should do and what I should say. And I pray a lot and ask God for wisdom and help about what to do, what to say. And I'm completely fine not saying anything if the opportunity doesn't come up. And when I do say something, I'm really careful about how to say it. But I trust that God is sovereign. And I trust that God loves my kids and my grandkids even more than I do. And that he will bring about his good purposes in their lives. And it really doesn't matter whether I say something or not, because God is at work in them. And in these small moments of suffering, knowing who God is and trusting him is everything. It's my peace and my direction. And even more so in the big, scary, real moments of suffering, God is our hope and our joy. He's our living hope. So today we're going to look at what Peter says about God and suffering in chapters 3 and 4. And as we've seen, Peter is writing to believers who are living in a hostile environment as exiles and foreigners. He's writing to a church that's suffering persecution, ostracism. They're mocked and ridiculed, limited in job possibilities and opportunities and social status, and without honor in an honor-shamed society. They face hostility, ostracism, and even death because of Jesus. And that's the real big, scary kind of suffering. And that's where knowing God means everything. And Peter says not to be afraid, surprised, or ashamed of suffering, but to accept it as a blessing. And that's really kind of radical. Peter redefines suffering, and he gives us a new perspective and a way forward when we suffer. So we're going to read 1 Peter 3 and part of chapter 4, and we're going to start in 1 Peter 3, 8. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can follow along. It's a long section, so hang in there with me as I read it. And think about what Peter says about suffering. So 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And we're going to skip down to chapter 4, verse 12, where Peter continues this train of thought. Verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or a meddler or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And in this long passage, Peter begins and ends with the reminder to do what's good to serve God, to love God, to do the things that are right and good. Be faithful, be compassionate, humble, love one another. And this is not new. This is what Peter has been saying all along. And these verses might sound a lot like what Pastors Eric and Pastor Brandon have been talking about over the last few weeks. They might remind you specifically of 1 Peter 2.12, which says, Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And both Pastor Eric and Pastor Brandon talked about that specific verse because that's a good principle for us. And it's especially important when we're suffering. And here in chapters 3 and 4, Peter is applying everything that he's already said to suffering. He says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And verse 17, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And Peter is telling us to keep doing what's good and right when we suffer. Keep living good lives. Keep loving others. Keep promoting peace and avoiding conflict. Keep your values, your purpose, your identity. Everything Peter said before applies when we're suffering. 
And suffering was a given for Christians in the early church. If you're going to suffer, it might as well be doing what's good and what's right. Don't sin and do what's wrong because that just makes matters worse, right? It just gets you into more trouble. It's better not to sin and to have a clear conscience. And if you're humble and compassionate, people will tend to be less hostile towards you because you're nice to them. Keep doing what's good and right when you suffer because it will prevent more suffering. And this is not always easy. It's hard to think about what's right and to do what's good, to think about other people when we're suffering. Right? Suffering makes us selfish. When I'm in pain, when I'm hurting, I really don't want to think about what's right or what others need. I'm not really concerned about other people's problems, unless their problems are the same as mine. And then I like talking about it with them, because we connect, right, when we're suffering together. But when I'm hurting, I can be impatient and rude when people don't understand what's going on. And when I feel left out or excluded, I want payback. I want to repay insult for insult. But those are all ways of making things worse. And Peter says, not to act selfishly when we're suffering. It just brings more suffering on ourselves. He says, keep doing what's good and right when you suffer. Don't be selfish, don't be mean, but continue to love others, to be compassionate and kind. We suffer in a lot of ways. We suffer health issues and sickness and pain and loss and grief and loneliness and depression and relationship struggles and worries of all kinds. But Peter's not primarily talking about those kinds of suffering. We can apply everything he says to all kinds of suffering, but he's specifically talking about suffering for Christ, because of Christ, because we're Christians. He's talking about persecution. And our experience today is different. We don't really experience that kind of persecution, but it is increasing in many parts of the world. We can think of places like North Korea, China, India, Afghanistan, Sub-Saharan Africa, where Christians are being killed for their faith today, where they're being forcibly displaced from their homes and churches are being attacked and closed. They face violence and persecution, much like Peter's listeners did, from neighbors, regular people, and from government repression. And we're not experiencing that kind of persecution. But some of us do experience shame, pressure, discomfort, exclusion because of our faith, because of the way we live for God. I read that the biggest threat of persecution to the church today is not external, but internal. That the biggest threat is that persecution brings isolation. And when it continues incessantly, it can cause loss of hope. And some of you might feel that sense of isolation and loss of hope when you feel social pressure, when you feel like you can't be the Christian you want to be with the people you're around. We don't experience outright persecution, but there is increasing hostility and pressure on Christians. And that will probably continue to grow. When my daughter went to college, she didn't party and get drunk like every other person on her floor in her dorm. And she knew who she was, but it was lonely, and she was tempted to try to fit in until she found other people like her in the dorm. 
When Brandon was at UCLA, two of his roommates were selling drugs. And he would tell me about this and tell me not to worry about it. But of course, I did, right? I worried that they would get arrested and that he would get arrested along with them. I probably should have worried that he would be tempted and that he might use drugs. Or maybe he did and he didn't tell me about that part. <laughs> but I didn't really think about that. But this is a problem for many of you on college campuses, or for your kids in high school or junior high school, or for some of you in your workplaces or in your social circles. You feel that subtle form of persecution, that pressure to conform to the group you're with or to the culture we live in. Maybe it's the drinking, drugs, partying, and sexual activity that makes you feel excluded or different or pressured or tempted. Maybe people look at you funny when you're extra nice and patient to those annoying weirdos in your workplace or in your social circle. Or maybe they look at you funny because you limit social media or because you put your family before your job. Maybe it's the overtime you've declined or the relationships you've left or lost or the opportunities you've sacrificed and people judge you or bully you or make fun of you. And maybe you're afraid to talk about your faith or your values, or someone has told you to stop talking about it. These are all social pressures that are a subtle form of persecution and suffering. They come from individuals or just the culture at large that seeks to prevent us from obeying God's word, from living with, for Jesus and following him. It's not outright persecution, but it is that pressure to fit in. It's the temptation to compromise and to sacrifice our faith and values for comfort and belonging. We make little choices, little compromises, and they lead to bigger ones that make us look no different from anyone else around us and can lead us away from Christ. And Peter says to hang in there. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't compromise what you believe and how you love Jesus because of the people around you. Don't be surprised by suffering. Don't give in. Don't be like them and repay insult for insult or stop doing good works or stop serving God because you're afraid of what they think. And when people question why you're so nice or why you don't do what they do, tell them the reason for the hope you have. You don't have to argue or convince them. Be gentle and be respectful. But you can have a clear conscience and bring glory to God. You can impact the people around you just by answering their questions and talking about the hope you have. They may see your good deeds and glorify God. So keep on doing what's good and right, even when you suffer. At the end of chapter 3, you may have noticed there's a section that sounds a little bit odd to us. Peter talks about Jesus speaking to imprisoned spirits in the days of Noah and water and baptisms. And I don't want to get into all the details. But it's a digression that ends with Jesus' death, or begins with Jesus' death, and ends with the resurrected Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. And the point here is that Jesus suffered, and that it was not the end. Jesus was victorious. His death was not the end, and suffering is not the end for us either. And Peter makes a big deal of the suffering of Jesus in chapters 3 and 4. He says in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And then there's that digression. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And Peter points to the suffering of Jesus. Because he wants us to take a long view and not just look at our suffering and what's happening to us right now here in this life, but to look at Jesus. And to look at how Jesus suffered in life and death and how he died on the cross for us. And also to look ahead to the glory of Jesus and what his suffering will accomplish in the world and in us. His death was not the end, and suffering is not the end for us either. And as we suffer for Christ, we will also be glorified with him in the end. See, God is doing something in our suffering. God is sovereign, he's purposeful, he's in control, and he has a plan for this world and for us. We've looked at this plan over the last several years as we've looked at the Old Testament beginning in Genesis and the Old Testament covenants and then through the Gospels and then through today and how God is working in all of that. That God is working to redeem this broken, sinful world to himself. God has a plan and he's working and Jesus' suffering and death is part of that plan. God is working to restore and redeem this broken world. And Jesus suffered, he lived, he died for us bringing the kingdom of God here on earth. Jesus came, died, and rose again to restore this broken world with the invitation for every person to believe in him and put their faith in him. And Jesus will be glorified as king. He will be revealed as king in glory. And we who love and follow him will be glorified with him. The Bible tells us that. And when we're suffering, we don't think about any of that. We just think about what's going on with us. But Peter wants us to look not just at ourselves and our suffering, but to look up at Jesus, to think about Jesus. He wants us to live in light of Jesus' suffering and glory and rejoice. And we don't like to think about suffering and rejoicing together. I struggled to write that sentence, and I tried many iterations of it because I didn't want to tell you to rejoice when you're suffering, because that's really hard. But that's what Peter is saying here. We can endure suffering, we can find hope in suffering, and we can rejoice in suffering. When we love and follow Jesus, when we grasp what he's done for us, when we live with worship and gratitude for who he is, we can rejoice even in suffering. It becomes a privilege to stand with Jesus, to honor with him, to so identify with him that we look ahead to being glorified with him. And the joy is not in the pain and the suffering itself. We don't have to feel happy that we get sick or that we get persecuted or made fun of because we're Christians. The joy is not in the suffering itself. The joy is in standing with Jesus the privilege of honoring him and knowing him 
It's the victory of being able to do what's right, to follow him. The joy is in knowing that God is good and purposeful and that God has a purpose for all the things we're going through, even when we don't see it. And the joy is in the bigger picture of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. Live in light of Jesus' suffering and glory and rejoice. We look at Jesus when we suffer because he is our living hope, but also because he models for us how to suffer. Jesus suffered all the ordinary, everyday pain and pressure of life. He was persecuted, misunderstood, tired, grieved, troubled in heart, upset at others. He understands suffering. He's been there. And he accepts all the stuff we're going through when we come to him in prayer, when we tell him all of our problems and pain and what we're feeling and what we're struggling with. And we receive hope and strength when we spend time with Jesus, when we sit with him and we weep when we're sad and when we're hurting, and we pray and tell him all about what's going on. Prayer is our refuge and strength because of Jesus. And we can rejoice because we do have a God who is with us, who loves us and cares for us and helps us in everything. And when we turn to God in our suffering, we grow in strength, in faith, in spiritual maturity. It brings us to our knees, and we turn to God in prayer. We read the Bible. We ask for help. We receive help from others. And when you think about the times that your faith grew, when you were closest to God or to others, there was probably some suffering that opened the door to it. God uses suffering. And he brings good into our lives. He blesses us even through our suffering. So turn to God daily, regularly, especially when you're suffering. If you're suffering now, turn to God and tell him all that's going on with you and ask him for help. And if you're not, how can you cultivate your relationship with God so that you're ready for suffering, so that you can survive and even thrive when you suffer? We live in a sinful and broken world. And there will be suffering. There will be illness and relationship problems and all kinds of hurt and pain. And we will struggle and suffer because we love Jesus and we stand for him. Don't do it alone. Let Jesus into your suffering, into whatever is going on in your life. But don't let pain and hurt come from meddling and sin and the wrong motives and desires. Keep doing good and doing what's right. And when suffering comes, don't be afraid or surprised or ashamed. Peter redefines suffering as a blessing. And we can make the hard choice to find hope in him, to live for him, to rejoice in our suffering. We can give an answer for our faith and impact the people around us. We have the privilege and honor of standing with Jesus. And when people ask us how we do it or why we do it, we can give an answer. We don't have to convince them or argue with them, but we can tell them. We can affect them in how we suffer, what we say, and how we live with joy and hope. I had two brothers, and my youngest brother, Richard, died 11 years ago. And some of you might remember how hard that was for me. I love Rich, I miss him. He was my youngest brother, but I looked up to him, even though he was the youngest, because he was way cooler than me. I was kind of a nerdy kid, and 
Rich was just cool. He was smart and funny and witty and charming, and he loved to argue. He thought he was always right. And my brothers both stopped going to church when they were in junior high school, and Rich mercilessly made fun of my mom, my sister, and me for our primitive beliefs and for wasting our time going to church. I sometimes tried to get in a good retort, but mostly I just ignored it. My mom tried to defend herself and argue with him, but when he started going to college and taking philosophy courses and using his philosophy against her, she just laughed at it. But when he got older, when we all got older and had kids and families, he kind of softened. He had health issues, he had a difficult marriage, he divorced, he watched me go through my divorce, and he helped me through it. And he would tell me that he envied my sister and I because we had faith and something to believe in but he thought he was too smart, too intellectual for that. He lived in Seattle, but we all got together occasionally for family vacations. And he would wish his kids were more like our kids, more centered, less vulnerable to peer pressure. When I left teaching to become a pastor, I was prepared for ridicule and mocking, but all he said was that he admired my conviction because he saw something different in us. When he had back pain and health problems, he let me pray for him. And sometimes when I opened my eyes and said amen, I would see tears in his eyes. He once told me he was a Christian, but he just didn't believe in all that church stuff, and I didn't know what that meant. We kind of talked about it, but I didn't really want to argue with him, and I just hoped it was a step in the right direction. And then when he had cancer, he lived in Seattle, I would just email him and tell him, what I was praying for him, and tell him he should pray, and tell him who Jesus was. And he didn't reply to any of my emails, but his wife said he read all of them. And when he died, I wasn't sure what he believed. I wished I had said more, argued more, that I had convinced him. But I held on to the hope that he turned to God, to Jesus, to faith, and was too proud or too sick to tell me. I wish I had some certainty, though. I also wish I had a happy ending to the story because I don't want you to feel sad and depressed for me. I cling to the grace of God and the hope that I will see him in heaven someday. But we don't always know who's watching or how we're affecting the people around us. We just live our lives, try to do what's good and right and to follow Jesus. We live with hope and joy. And when people ask us, we explain. We answer their questions. And we're kind, compassionate, even when we suffer and we're insulted or excluded. We try to live as Jesus calls us to live. And we keep doing good, give an answer to those who ask, and pray that they will see God in us and that they will glorify him. What Peter wants us to know in our suffering is that there is a bigger picture. We're so focused on our own suffering and what's happening to us and Peter wants us to look up and see Jesus, to live in light of the suffering and glory of Jesus, to find hope in him and to rejoice. When you believe in Jesus, you can see beyond your suffering, to see that there is a purpose, that God is doing something, even when you can't see it. And when you trust in Jesus, you can trust that he is with you in your suffering, and you will be with him in his glory. You can live in light of Jesus' suffering and glory. And you can find hope and joy and strength in him. When I was younger, I didn't think about heaven much.
But I do now, now that I've lost a brother, both parents, and now that I am getting older myself. I'm glad there's a heaven. I can look back and see all that God provided and all that, that God answered every prayer. And I can look forward with hope and joy. But heaven is not just something for old people to look forward to. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here, and we can live as his disciples in his kingdom, pursuing kingdom living. We can look at Jesus when life is hard and live in light of his suffering and glory. We can keep on living, loving others, caring for others, living with compassion and humility, trying to do what's right and what's good in God's eyes. And we can rejoice and take a long view, knowing that this life is not all there is, that God will make all things right, and that there is glory and joy in eternity with Jesus. That's our future, and that's our present right now. Let's pray.